0: Good morning. Uh, Today I'd like to share uh, a two-part message uh, titled In the Making. Now, this was our title or our theme at our youth fall retreat recently, and so I apologize to those youth who kind of have to go through this a second time, but don't worry, I kind of remixed it. You'll get more out of it the second time, so we're good. Um, Yeah, In the Making was our theme, and what do we mean when we say that term, in the making. It's the process of getting something from where it is to where we would like it to be, right? A mixture of uh, flour, water, and yeast, it's not where we would like it to be yet, right? It's in the making to becoming bread. Um, If you're following a car that has that little green sticker with an N on it in the back, you know that this driver is in the making abrupt manoeuvres may occur. Um, They're not yet a fully licensed driver, but they're in the making, right? If you have a garden and you plant a bunch of seeds, you don't have uh, a garden full of veggies and fruit that's ready to go, you gotta wait, it's in the making. And so it is with most things in our life. Most goals require some kind of a process, right? And these processes usually require hard work and patience. If your goal is to make uh, a delicious meal, for example, that takes some work and patience. Um, Marriages and relationships, those require work and patience, right? If you want to make money, just go ask mom and dad. No, right? You got to work and practice patience. And the truth is we ourselves as individuals are also constantly in a process of being in the making. And... If we're all works in progress, doesn't that mean that we're moving toward something? This totally makes sense when we can see uh, real, tangible results. Uh, It makes sense when you get your driver's license, right? You're moving toward getting fully licensed. It makes sense when you're pursuing a degree or graduation or promotion at work or marriage. And we can easily see that we're moving toward a goal in these different examples. But when it comes to who you become, who I become, the work in progress becomes a little bit blurrier, right? Those results are not always so tangible and we can't see them as easily. And that's because God made us really complex, multi-dimensional beings who are physical and mental and relational and spiritual. And each of those dimensions shape us. And progress is sometimes difficult to measure. So the question is, what are we moving toward? Who are we working to become? This question, I think more than any other, is actually going to shape who we are. Why? Because the type of person that you end up being will directly impact the type of life that you're living. And the the opposite side of that coin is true also. The type of life that you're living right now is shaping you into the type of person that you're becoming. And so if I were to ask you the simple question, what kind of person do you want to be? What would you say? I think a pretty safe bet that most of us would at least say I would like to be a good person, right? Inherently, I don't know anyone who says I want to be a terrible person we want to be someone who does right things. We want to be a person who helps others, a person who's known uh, to be virtuous. We want to be the kind of person that others say good things about. We want to leave a positive impact in our world and in our circle of influence. Wouldn't it be great if we ended up being those kinds of people? But the problem isn't really that we don't know who to be. That's pretty easy. We all kind of have a pretty good sense of who we would like to be. The problem is that we don't always know how to be that, how to get to be the kind of person we want to be. So how do we do that? You guys ready for this? Secret sauce. Take your pens and notebooks out. Starts with your decisions. Not just the big ones for your future but the little daily ones that we make every day, the ones that we may not think actually have uh, a lot of meaning or a lot of value or, or have any kind of consequences to our future. Now, you probably expected something a little bit more insightful because most of you probably already know that, and most would probably agree with that. But just knowing and believing something doesn't actually solve the problem because the problem is that making good decisions consistently is really difficult. And in fact, it's far easier and sometimes more fun to make bad decisions. And some of you um, may be in a place in life where you feel like your decision-making has disqualified you from becoming a better you in the future. You might say, well, if I'm a work in progress, there's a ton of work still left to be done. And that may be true, but it does not disqualify you from changing your path. Some of you may be a little bit further along in age and you might think, well, it's too late for me to change who I am. I'm kind of set in the way that I think and live. As an older friend once told me that I used to work with whenever I would try to uh, show him something that he didn't know, he said, you can't teach an old dog a new trick. But the grand story of the Bible would actually disagree with that. If you look at the character's just to name a couple. Abraham was thought to be in his 70s when God called him. Moses at the burning bush was 80 years old. And some of you may feel like your decision-making has disqualified you from becoming someone that God could really use. You might say, I've probably just worked my way out of God's good graces. But this is, this is why I find the stories in the Bible so compelling. Because as you get to really understand the characters that we consider to be heroes in the Christian faith, they're actually not superheroes. They were just normal people like you and I. And if you get familiar with the stories in the Bible, you will find that it is not a book full of perfect people doing amazing things. It's a book about a perfect God using imperfect people to do great things, both big and small. And in other words, the heroes of our faith, they were just people who are in the making, just like you and just like me. With that in mind, let's look at one of those characters from the Bible this morning. His name is, is David, maybe you've heard of him. Um, he was a shepherd, he became a warrior and eventually the king of Israel. But he was also a musician and a poet, and he was arguably one of the greatest and one of the worst people in the Bible far from perfect, and yet God was able to use him to do great things. Um, Before we get into the story a little bit, let me just explain a little bit of context. So long before Jesus, God used prophets to speak to people. And at the time of David, the prophet was named Samuel. And God would speak to Samuel and tell Samuel what to communicate to the people, what was on God's mind. And David was a kid uh, when Israel had their very first king, a guy named Saul. And if you're familiar with the story, you know that unfortunately things were not going super well with Saul at the helm. He had failed to follow God's instructions, and he had selfishly disobeyed uh, God's, God's commands on how to be king, on, on to be a king under God. And so God told Samuel that he was going to be the one to go find the new king. God had already chosen one. And that's where we pick up the story today. God has told Samuel to go to this town called Bethlehem. Um, It is the same Bethlehem where Jesus would be born years later. And his job was to find a guy named Jesse. Because one of Jesse's many sons would be the next king. And so Samuel finds Jesse, and he asks him to bring out all his sons. And Jesse lines up his sons from oldest to youngest. Well, that is except for one, because... There's no chance that he would be king. He's he's busy doing chores. We won't bother getting him. And then, as they all stand there, Samuel goes to the oldest first. And the oldest one is Eliab. He comes to Samuel, and God tells Samuel not to choose him. And then the story continues like this. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen any of these. And so he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Well, there is still the youngest. The youngest. And remember that term youngest. We're going to go back to what that actually means in Hebrew. There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. One by one, the brothers go by, and God tells Samuel no over and over and over again until they've all had their shot. That is, of course, except for David. David is in the field, and he's watching sheep. It was the least important job, but somebody had to do it. They didn't even bother to go get him, and not only did David's brothers think there was no chance of God possibly choosing David to be king, but his own dad doesn't give him a second chance, a second thought. In fact, in that original uh, Hebrew language, the word the youngest is still out in the field. That word youngest is hakatan, super fun to say. And that word doesn't just mean youngest, it's a little bit of a derogatory term that also means smallest least, the weakest. Nice parenting, right? And I can just imagine David's brothers, you know, day-to-day interactions, making fun of him, using that term. It's like, ah, you know, shut up, Hackathon, or get out of here. You're such a hackathon. You can use that next time you're you're in a or maybe don't. Um, But we can imagine how David, growing up, would feel about himself, the one who never measures up, the one who never gets picked, the one who's just never good enough. And maybe you can relate to that feeling. But listen to how Samuel responds. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit until he arrives. So he sent for him and he had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. And now just imagine the looks on his brothers' faces and his dad probably just choking or on his coffee. Can you imagine their faces? David's dad and brothers must have been completely dumbfounded. They had already counted him out, they hadn't even noticed him, but God had. God was saying that David would be the next king of Israel. And based on what we know about David in this story, how is that even possible? Well, a bit earlier, the Bible gives us a clue. When the oldest brother was brought to Samuel, naturally first, because he was the most likely to be the next king, he seemed like the perfect choice. He seemed like this was the total package. But listen to this. The Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Basically, God says, don't assume that you know what I'm going to do with someone because you don't see what I see, and you don't know what I know about them. And that's really important for us, too, because for some of us, when we look in the mirror, we often see someone who doesn't have what it takes, someone who doesn't measure up. But there's one thing you can't see in the mirror. You can't see what God sees, you don't know what he knows about you, what he thinks about you, and what he has planned for you. You might think some of your labels disqualify you from doing something hard or important or great, but the truth is that God sees something inside of you that you can't see outside of you. And I bet that no one was more surprised than David when he was chosen by Samuel to be the next king. I would imagine that while David sat there watching the sheep day in and day out, that he wondered the same thing that you and I might wonder some days when we're just not feeling it, right, at work or in the classroom or we're doing menial chores at home. And we start to question and ask, what am I even doing here? Does does any of this even matter? Do I matter? But David's present moments as an ordinary shepherd... They did matter. In fact, not long after uh, this happened, David has an incredible experience, and it's probably what he's most famous for. And it's an experience that he could have totally missed out on had he not realized that his now, his present moment, mattered. You probably know the story. It has to do with a giant named Goliath. And Goliath was this terrible beast of a man described to be nine feet tall, an elite soldier boasting size and strength who mocked Israel and their God. No one, it says, was brave enough to face Goliath, not even the trained soldiers in Israel's army. But David, little little Hakatan shepherd boy David, he decided that it had to stop. And so he went to the king to King Saul, and he said that he wanted to face the giant. And here's the thing. No one thought David had what it took to fight in the army, let alone face their greatest threat, Goliath. David's own brothers, um, yeah, there we see. David's own brothers, when seeing that David came to the battlefield, they were angry and thought that David was conceited and wicked. King Saul thought David was unable, too young, not good enough. Goliath was offended that this little twerp would come out and face him. He was not worthy. And imagine for a moment that you're in David's shoes. Your family, those in authority over you, and your opposition are all telling you the same message. You're not good enough. You're weak. You can't do that. You have nothing to offer. Just go back to your menial little job. I know that if I place myself in David's shoes, honestly, if I place myself in his shoes, I would tend to start to believe the voices around me and probably admit defeat. Ah, they're probably right. I, I can't do that. I can't make a difference. I can't really change. My life won't amount to much. Uh, who, who am I to even think that I could do something hard or great? No one, absolutely no one around David gave him the vote of confidence. No one even gave him a word of encouragement. And so if we can honestly for a moment place ourselves in David's shoes, how many of us would at the very least second-guess ourselves? Probably a good number. How many of us might shy away from the challenge altogether if our primary gauge is what other people are saying about us. And if our primary measuring stick is the challenge that's far too big in front of me. And this, this is why David's response is so shocking. Listen to how David responds to King Saul. He says, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep, When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. David was not discouraged by the voices around him. David was not overcome with fear of a giant who is clearly much larger and much stronger than him. Everyone saw this as a comparison of size and strength. Everyone knew that it would be completely foolish to go up against Goliath using Goliath's methods. I mean, if there's any wrestling or UFC fans in here, who would put a middle school kid in an octagon with a UFC champion? No one. But while everyone saw this as a size and strength issue, David saw this as a God issue. The question is, What gave David such incredible confidence and trust that God would come through in a moment like this? It's easy to kind of abstractly say, well, God is good, God is faithful, that's why you should trust him. But again, we're placing ourselves in David's shoes right now. What gave David such incredible confidence in that moment to trust who God is and who God made him to be which seems to be the very opposite of the entire message he's getting. David looked back and recognized God's faithfulness in the past, in his ordinary moments as a shepherd. What David learned about God and himself in the fields with the sheep in his ordinary life with the menial tasks that maybe didn't seem like they were significant is exactly what prepared him to go out onto the battlefield and to have victory, to kill Goliath. Not by being someone else, not by trying to fit into someone else's armor or using someone else's weapons or their skills, but he did it by trusting in a God who was far larger than Goliath, a God that he knew He had a relationship with that God. And by being confident in who God made him to be with his unique skills as a shepherd. His ordinary moments right now is what set him up for greatness later. Imagine the amount of time that David had by himself out in the fields, if he's watching sheep all day long outside. How much time he had to himself to get to know God and in turn, to get to know himself. David treated his now as though it actually mattered right now. And maybe you've never seen yourself as a hero or as someone that God could even use to do meaningful things. Maybe you've been told, you're only a hackathon all your life. Maybe you think your best years are behind you and it's too late for God to do something great in your life at this point. But as you look in the mirror, remember that God sees something in you that you can't see outside of you. And so what steps can you take to make sure that you're exactly where God wants you to be? I think it's, it's simple. We can start with the same thing that David started, and that is to treat now like it actually matters now. Um, my parents were out visiting recently, and they helped us with a little bit of uh, fall cleanup in our yard. And so, you know, cleaning up the garden box and trimming back some, some hedges and some rose bushes. And one of the things that my dad also advised me to, to do, um, he's, he's an apple orchard farmer, he advised me to, to separate the, the branches on our young pear trees that we had just planted this, uh, this spring. And I think the technical term is training the branches. Is that correct? Yeah? We'll say it is. Uh, <laughs> see, our young trees, they have this tendency that all of the branches, they kind of want to grow up vertically. Um, and as the tree grows and matures, it could easily get a little bit too crowded. Um, not enough sunlight could get in. And it's going to get more difficult to harvest the pears. And so from the time that trees are really young, you can train the branches to grow outward to grow more horizontally so that the tree opens up more and it gives it more space and more sunlight and it'll make it easier to, to harvest. And the way that you train branches is you have to flex the young branches out and fasten them to something so that they'll stay that way. And so I was like, oh yeah, I get it. I'll get to it eventually, dad. But he kind of pushed me a little bit. He said, you know what? You, you probably want to actually do it like now. And so, in my head, I asked, well, why the rush? Why can't I wait till a few weeks from now? Or why can't I wait till next year? Why right now, because I'm too busy? And he said, well, because today is a nice warm day, and the branches are more flexible in warm weather. And if you wait for it to be cold, which could happen any day now, um, you risk that the branches might break. And if you wait until next year, those branches are going to be a little bit thicker, a little bit less flexible, a little bit harder to, to bend out. And so the moment is right now. Right now matters. This tree is in the making, right? It's not yet what it's going to be in the future. It's in the process of becoming what it will one day be. But here's the thing. What it will be in the future depends on the present moment. If I want this tree to have a nice open um, set of branches, I got to deal with that right now. And so the same it's, it's the same thing with us. Now, right now, is not the mistakes that we made in past years. Now is not the off week that we may have just had or the bad decisions we may have made on the weekend. Now is, is right now, this moment. This day. And so if you are young and still have plenty of years ahead of you, that tree analogy might connect really well with you if you feel like your present moment is insignificant. And if you are older in years, you may think you're no longer that young tree. And maybe you think, my time has passed, there's no no way I can retrain my branches. But I love what C.S. Lewis says to this. This is a quote that actually just popped up on my feed this week and I loved it. It's by C.S. Lewis. It says, you can't go back and change the beginning but you can start where you are and change the ending. And so whether you are 8 or 17 or 30 or 80 years old, we are all a work in progress. We're all in the making. We might not have an idea of what God is already doing in our lives through you and around you. But he is. And so will we treat now this day like it matters. Amen.